come to this part of God's Word, known as the book of Jude. In many ways, we find that Jude is neglected. Jude is in some ways a neglected little brother, a younger sibling, if you will. Perhaps you've seen those kinds of family photos. Perhaps you've been in one yourself, where the older siblings are crowded around, and there's that younger brother peeking through the arms, trying to get a view of what's going on, the one who is often left behind by accident. Well, that's Jude this morning. Uh, In terms of the New Testament, Jude is fairly neglected. He gets certainly less airtime than Jesus, a lot less time than Paul, even less time than his brother James. He's the little brother. He's a single chapter, only 25 verses, barely more than 600 words in the Pew Bible translation that you have before you. When was the last time that you had a look at Jude? When was the last time you heard a sermon from Jude? Probably, if you're like me, you know Jude best by its ending, that benediction, that doxology right at the end, which is so often used to close services, a beautiful doxology that we'll dwell on more this evening. Yet, for all of its smallness, Jude is scripture. Jude is part of God's word. And therefore, this little letter sermonette, we might call it, is worth our attention. Because it, too, is God-breathed. The Holy Spirit, too, has inspired this book. And so we know, then, that it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training us in righteousness. We need to give attention to Jude this morning. Well, Jude was originally written, we think, to very specific churches, probably a group of churches, probably in the area known as Palestine in the first century. So churches that had begun with Jewish Christians and slowly added Gentiles to their mix, probably authored sometime in the middle of the 60s A.D. in that first century. Let me very briefly introduce you to Jude before we have a look at what he has to say to us this morning. So who's this person, Jude? Well, Jude self-identifies, very interestingly, in verse 1, not the brother of Jesus, although he was the the little brother of Jesus, but as the brother of James. And more importantly, do you see what it says there in verse 1? Jude, not the brother, the servant, a servant of Jesus Christ. So Jude is the one who's writing to us, the brother of Jesus, but more importantly, the servant of Jesus, one with apostolic authority who's writing on behalf of Jesus, not just his brother, but his Lord. What about Jude's plan? Well, Jude tells us in verses 3 and 4, doesn't he there, that he had a plan, but he had to change his plan. Do you see that? That little word, although, that starts at verse 3, indicates the change of plan. Well, plan A was this. He wanted to write to the churches about their common salvation. He wanted to write to them, we can assume, teaching them more about the common faith they shared, more about Christ, more about what it meant to be Christian. But there was an urgency which led him to change his plan. So plan B came into play. And what was plan B? Well, he had to write to the churches urging them to contend for the true Christian faith. So there's something going on in the churches that he's aware of that makes him change his plan. Well, what is, what is that problem that bumps him from plan A to plan B? Well, he tells us in verse 4, doesn't he? You see that word for gives us the reason 
for the change of plan. For certain individuals whose condemnation were written, was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. In these early decades of the church, as it was forming and spreading around the ancient Mediterranean world, there were pastors, teachers, traveling teachers working their way around from church to church. And some of them showed up. And they might have a letter of introduction. Others showed up that wanted to teach. So how do you know, as a young church, with some of the scriptures in hand, how do you know how to evaluate these teachers? Well, Jude has become aware that there's a problem. Some false teachers have crept in. Some teachers who have the wrong idea about the Christian faith and whose lives are tracking in a very dangerous direction. That's the problem that Jude was aware of. And so he writes this little letter. And he writes it, we called it a letter sermonette just a moment ago. He writes it almost like a letter. Do you see the letter opening? This is like lots of other letters in the New Testament, isn't it? You get the person, you get to the people they're writing, and then a little greeting in verse 2, mercy, peace, and love. That's very typical of letters. But look at the end. It doesn't end like a letter. There are no closing greetings. There are no names mentioned. How does it end? It ends like a sermon. You see what Jude's doing? He wants to preach to them from a distance. So he writes a letter, but he actually changes very quickly into a sermon. So when that letter was read aloud, it's as if Jude is there preaching to them, just as he would if he were able to be with them. Well, if he were with them, but indeed we have his letter here, what, what is it that Jude would say to get at the heart of the problem in these churches? Well, it's right there for us in verse 4. These certain individuals who've crept in, how are they characterized by Jude? They are, we're told, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality, and they deny Jesus as our only sovereign and Lord. Three interconnected and major problems in view here. Ungodly living false teaching that perverts the grace of God, and a very bad view of who Jesus is, denying him as sovereign, master, as some translations would have it, denying the authority of Jesus as the risen Christ. Well, that gives us a little bit of context, but it's helpful, too, I think, to have the big picture of the flow of this letter sermon before we dive in, especially because we're only covering the first 16 verses this morning. But if you're interested, please come back this evening. Because at 6.30, we'll gather again for evening worship to close out the Lord's Day together. And we will also close out the letter of Jude. So we would love to see you with us this evening if you're able to be here. Well, how do these 25 verses flow? Really, there are five parts. First, verses 1 and 2, there's the opening. Then verses 24 and 25 is that closing doxology. In between, we get the meat of this sermon. Verses 3 and 4, as we've seen, lay out the plan the problem, and really the main point, that because of this false teaching, Jude's urging them to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Then in verses 5 to 19, the major middle section of Jude, Jude gives us a series of illustrations or examples from the Old Testament, from other literature that's circulating about the Old Testament at that time. And then he applies those examples again and again to these people. Do you see how frequently we get the language of these and they? Look, for example, at verses 5 through 7, the first little section. 
So he reminds them of several different examples. Verse 5, that the Lord saved the people out of Egypt. Verse 6, the rebellion of some angels. Verse 7, Sodom and Gomorrah. Lots of examples. And then what does he do? The end of verse 7, they serve. He applies those examples to these false teachers. He does it again then in verses 8 through 11. And again. So the middle section of this letter is a continual series of illustrations and examples applied to these features so that Jude's listeners in the churches are able better to understand the danger and recognize the danger of their false teaching so that they can fulfill the main appeal in verse 3, contend for the faith. Well, that takes us through verse 19. And then verses 20 to 23, in many ways, are the climax of the entire sermon. This is the end. This is the application that Jude has in mind. It supplies all the detail about how we are meant to contend for the faith properly. Well, that's the flow of the big picture. This morning, we're going to work our way up through verse 16. We want to keep the big picture in mind. And I would suggest one way to do so is to think of it in these terms. The message of Jude, in many ways, boils down to this. Christians are called and kept to contend. Do you hear that? They're called and they're kept to contend. Christians are called by God. They are kept in Christ and for Christ in order that they might contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. That, in a nutshell, is the message of Jude. Now, even in a small letter like Jude, there's a lot of rich detail, of course, that we won't be able to cover this morning or even this evening. But in order to draw this together, that we are called and kept to contend, we want to look at this in four brief sections. First of all, that we have a common faith. Secondly, there's a common attitude, a mistaken one, as we'll see. Thirdly, there is a common error that many people make. And finally, we are called to contend. Let's begin with a common faith. Many of you have heard before, and some of you may even know from experience, that the best way to spot the counterfeit is what? To have an intimate knowledge of the true thing. So if you work with coins or you work with money, those who can spot a counterfeit coin or a counterfeit bill can do so because they have studied intimately the real thing. They've spent hours getting to know the nuances of design, the different features. Well, there's a recent example of this really paying off, actually, in ways that matter to us as Christians. A few years ago, there was the announcement of a new papyrus fragment that had been found, and it was uh, emblazoned on the news as a papyrus fragment entitled The Gospel of Jesus' Wife, because allegedly this fragment, written in an ancient language called Coptic, had a little line that seemed to say something about, then Jesus said to his Wife, And it was kind of broken off, a little bit difficult to read, but it was trumpeted on the news. Does this mean Jesus had a wife? Does this up and overturn everything that we've thought about Jesus historically that's delivered to us as the common faith? Well, a few years later now, scholars have definitively proved that this is a forgery. How did they do so? Well, they did so by a close examination of the writing the grammar that it was written in, of the features, the material on which it was written. And all of that has led them to realize now that this was a very clever forgery, that someone found a scrap of papyrus from the 8th century and very carefully made it look as if this were an ancient Coptic text. It's false. 
But how do we know it's false? Because originally the experts told us it was true. Well, we know it's false because those who are gifted by the Lord to do so have studied the real thing faithfully. The same applies for us as we approach the common salvation, the common faith that we have received. We've got to know the real thing if we're going to know the counterfeit when we see it. And you see in verse 4, that's what this problem is all about. These ungodly teachers have perverted, they've twisted, they've distorted the grace of our God. Well, then that means we better know what grace is so that when we see it twisted and distorted, we can recognize it, doesn't it? Do you know what grace is? How would you define the gospel of grace? And how would you know if it's been distorted? Well, grace is often defined as unmerited favor, isn't it? Something that we don't deserve. And that is true insofar as it goes. But perhaps even better is if we say that grace is dismerited favor. What's the difference in the prefix there, dis versus on? Well, it's this. It's not just we deserve God's free gift of salvation in Christ. It's that we actually deserve the opposite. That when we deserve curse from God, he's given us blessing. That when we deserved death, he's given us life. That when we deserve judgment and condemnation, he has called us to himself. That's what dismerited favor, that's what grace is all about. And we have beautiful summary at the bookends of Jude of what grace is, don't we? We see there in verse 1, he's writing to those who are called, who are loved in God the Father, and who are kept by or for Jesus Christ. Called, loved, and kept. Called when you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Called by God, loved by him, brought by him into relationship, and kept by him for Christ. Look at verse 21 as we come toward the end of this little letter. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That's what the grace of the gospel is also about, isn't it? That we have the hope of eternal life because God has had mercy upon us in Christ when we deserve the very opposite. And then, of course, verse 25, as we finish, the only God, our Savior. Jude knows, along with all the other apostolic writings, that there is only one God and Savior. There is only one way to be saved for our sins, and that is by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is the Christian gospel of grace, the common faith, the common salvation, once for all delivered to the saints. And this is the substructure of everything Jude writes as he begins to address the problem. It's just there under the surface. Do you see what he says in verse 5? You already know all this, but I want to remind you. And again in verse 17, remember what the apostles of our Lord foretold. He intends that they will know these things, but that they will call them to remembrance because it's by knowing what true grace is that they will be able to spot the counterfeit. Well, that's the common faith, the common salvation that we've received. But there's also a common attitude which is characterized, which characterizes these false teachers from verse 4 onward. And it centers around this idea that they pervert or distort 
the grace of God. They misconstrue the grace of God. How do they do that? Well, what are we told in verse 4? Into a license for immorality. These teachers consider themselves not to be set free from sin, but to be set free for themselves and for the fulfillment of their own desires. But this is not grace, is it? This is not grace. Yes, grace is good news. We're set free. We're set free from our sin. We're set free from the curse that was hanging over us. We're set free and given power to actually begin to change our lives, to change our habits by the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus. But, of course, that's freedom for holiness, isn't it? Not freedom for self-indulgence. This has always been a problem. Paul faced the same objection, didn't he, in Romans and Galatians. So in Romans 6, chapter uh, chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we read, What then shall we say? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Paul anticipates what some objections to his gospel might be. It sounds so radical and so free that some might say, well, so do we just go on sinning? We're set free. What does Paul say? By no means, in as strong uh, terms as he can say it, by no means. We are those, he says, who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So grace is a gift, yes, it's a, it's a gift of freedom, but it's freedom from sin and freedom for God, not for self. And that's what these teachers have twisted, perverted, and misconstrued. In verses 8 to 10, we're told that these uh, teachers, by misconstruing grace, they also reject several things. They reject the authority of God. They claim to have their own dreams, don't they, in verse 8? that guide them, their own private spiritual revelation. They reject the law of Moses. That's what it means there at the end of verse 8 when it says, heap abuse upon celestial beings. This is a tradition we see elsewhere in Hebrews chapter 2, that the angels were present at Mount Sinai when God gave Moses the law. And of course, in in verse 9, he goes on to talk about Moses, doesn't he? What they're rejecting here is the authority of God's holy law. But they also reject the Lord Jesus himself, don't they? According to verse 4, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Well, in verse 11, there's a nice illustration here that characterizes them. In fact, a triple illustration. That dude's a preacher. He likes threes, doesn't he? He likes these triplets as you read through. You see the triplet in verse 11. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Jude expects us to know our Bibles well. If those names ring bells for you, get yourself a Bible that has footnotes that takes you to those texts and go home and read those texts this week and it will give you more perspective on what Jude is talking about. Let's take one just for example. Let's take that third one, Korah's Rebellion. If you have your Bible, flip all the way back to the the early part to, to the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 16, we find the story about Korah's rebellion. In verses 1 to 5, we read this, Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Peleth, became insolent. An arrogant rebellion here. And they rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group, 
Why? To oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Do you see what they're doing? They're rejecting the authority of Moses and Aaron over the community. But there's a problem with that rejection, isn't there? It's fine to say, well, we're all equals here, aren't we? Why, what makes you so special, Moses? Okay, fine, so far as that goes, except there's a problem. Jump down to verse, thir- verse 28 in chapter 16. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me. See, it wasn't Moses who took that position of leadership upon himself. It was the Lord who dragged him out of the wilderness as a shepherd and placed him as the leader of his people. So by rejecting Moses, whom are the people rejecting? They're rejecting the Lord and his authority. So Moses goes on to say, The Lord has sent me to do all these things, and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated, does he say me? No, have treated the Lord with contempt. That's what's in the background of that little third illustration of verse 11 in Jude. Do you feel the weight of it? Once you once you know what these examples are that Jude is appealing to, the weight comes down that much more heavily, doesn't it? These are the ones, these false teachers, Jude says, are the ones who have been destroyed. Do you see that? He speaks of it as if it's already taken place. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion because they too are rebellious and they too are rejecting the Lord when they reject Moses, when they reject the prophets and the apostles, when they reject the Lord Jesus Christ as master. Now there's a big word for such people. Uh, and so those of you who are uh, the children here this morning have the worksheets. This is the big word. The rest of you can act like you know it, even if you don't know the word. The big word is antinomian. Antinomian. A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N. What does that mean? Well, anti, right? It's against something. Nomos is the Greek word for law. So antinomian is the rejection of the authority, particularly of God's law. And it's a particular problem for those who pervert or distort the grace of God, the gospel of grace, just as these false teachers are doing. And they go on to reject God's law and to say, we don't have to live under that anymore. We don't have to live lives that please God with holiness. We are free to do whatever we like. But Jude, along with the rest of the Bible, says, no, no. Yes, you were saved by grace through faith. Yes, it's a completely free gift. Yes, the Lord is still working in you freely by his grace to transform you day by day. But that is a grace that's been given to set you free for holiness, not from it. So antinomianism has no place in the church. And if we know the gospel of grace, the beautiful thing is we won't misconstrue it in this way. Because a deep knowledge of the grace of God makes us eager, gives us thankful hearts to do his will, to seek to please him. 
So this common attitude of antinomianism is absolutely false and dangerous according to Jude. It leads to ungodliness, doesn't it? Do you see how frequently that word occurs in this short letter? Ungodliness. It's there in verse 4. It's there multiple times in verse 15. Did you hear it as we read it? To judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. It's as if Jude can't make the point strongly enough. This leads to ungodliness. It doesn't please God to live this way. Well, how does this ungodliness work itself out? Work itself out? It does so especially in three ways. First of all, there's that rejection in verse 4 of God's authority to guide our lives. That license for immorality could also be translated disregard for rules or laws. It's a rejection of God's authority. Then in verses 7 and 8 and 18, another very serious manifestation of ungodliness. This is sexual sin. We'll come back to this. And thirdly, there's verbal sin. Do you see it there in verse 16? These people are grumblers and fault finders. It even manifests in the way they speak. So we need to reflect carefully on these things, lest we fall prey to aspects of this same common attitude, a disregard for God's authority in our lives and a desire to do what we want to do to think that we've been set free in order to indulge our own desires. So let me ask you a few questions just to apply this at the moment. First of all, what is your view? How do you act in terms of the authority of God's word, of the Bible, of his sovereign rule in your life? Is it enough for you that God says? Is it enough for you If it is pointed out to you, perhaps by someone in church, by the minister from the pulpit, that actually God says you can't do that. That actually God says this is the way we're meant to live. That this is the way we're meant to do church. That this is the way we're meant to carry ourselves in our bodies. Is that enough for you that God says? Because if not, if you if you kick against that a little bit, then you find yourself having the same kind of attitude as these false teachers, rejecting the authority of God's revealed word to us. So we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we willing to submit to God's word and everything it teaches, even, especially, when it goes against the grain of our own desires, our own thoughts about what's right and wrong, our own nature, what we feel to be our nature, the way we're made, because, of course, it's a sinful nature. If it goes against our own nurture, the way we've been raised and taught and the traditions we have that we don't even know we have sometimes, are you willing to submit all of that to God's Word and to say, if God's Word tells me I can't do something, I must not do it. If God's Word tells me I must live in a certain way, I must do that. This, of course, is a great challenge, not only uh, in the church, but also given the pressures in our culture these days. But we must ask ourselves, do we submit ourselves, unlike these false teachers, unequivocally to the authority of God's word? Follows on from that then, how do we view our own bodies? Because that's central, isn't it? Sexual immorality is central to the lifestyle of these teachers 
and to the results of their teaching. The teaching that they promote leads to ungodliness in the form of sexual immorality. God in Scripture tells us, doesn't he, what pleases him. And he demands purity from us. Purity, from no matter who we are, no matter how we feel we are made, no matter what our desires lead us towards, God has given us a template for what it means to please him with our bodies. We need to study that. We need to know that. We need to submit to that. Because we are called and we are kept by God in order to glorify him in our bodies. Sexual sin, public, private, in action, thought, has no place in our lives. And we must not give it even an inch. And thirdly, this issue of our speech and our attitude in verse 16. These teachers follow their own sinful desires that works itself out in grumbling and fault-finding, boasting, flattering others in order to gain followers and friends. Do we lean in any of those directions? Do we rein in our tongues, to use the language of Jude's brother James? Or do we think that we get to say whatever we want to say, however we want to say it? We need to submit our tongues to the Lord as well. Well, there's lots of food for thought there that convicts us, but we need to finish here briefly. So we've seen there's a common salvation, a common attitude, misconception of antinomianism, and the last two points, very briefly, are a common error and this call to contend. What is the common error? Well, the common error is very simply this. These false teachers were partially motivated by the fact that they thought there would not be a final judgment that would hold them accountable before the Lord. Jude says they're wrong, doesn't he? Look at verses 14 and 15. Jude uses an example from Enoch. In fact, he takes this from an example from a book that wasn't scripture. It wasn't Jewish scripture at the time. It's still not scripture in any Christian tradition. And yet it was well known. And it made a point that agreed with the biblical principle that Jude wanted to make. And so he's happy to use that as an example and apply it. And this is, this is what he does. Enoch, he says, the seventh from Adam prophesied about them, these men. See, the Lord is coming with Thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. To do what? Verse 15. To judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed. And he goes on. There is indeed a final judgment. We don't like to think about this. This makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We find ourselves and those that we bump into day by day often in the position uh, that we have heard about recently as Andy's been preaching to us from Acts, don't we? If you go, think back or turn, if you like, to Acts chapter 24, it's there that Felix hears Paul. Do you remember this? Do you remember it? What does Paul say to Felix? Well, in chapter 24 of Acts, verses 24 and 25, it says, several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul talked about what? about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. What's Felix's reaction? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. I'll call you back when it's convenient. 
it made him incredibly uncomfortable to think about the fact that there will be a day, a final day of judgment, on which we all stand before the Lord of glory, who made heaven and earth, and give account for ourselves. This is what God's word teaches. And these teachers didn't believe it. They were wrong. And that error was a grave error. So finally, Jude moves from these churches and the Christians in these churches to understand the grace of God, what it means to to recognize it when it's twisted. And he issues to them this call to contend, to contend for the faith. This in verse 3, which returns uh, into view in the climax of verses 20 to 23, is really the main point of the letter. Now, again, I'll say it. Please join us this evening when we will continue on and talk a lot more about this part of the letter. All I will say for now is this, that Paul, uh, Paul excuse me, Jude uses here a interesting word, really a metaphor, from athletics, ancient athletics, to talk about contending. It's the idea of training, competing, competing with vigor. So I, I used to be a runner. Now I'm trying to make a re-entry into running, uh, as I see 40 on the near horizon, and I'm finding that my body rebels against this. So I've been telling my boys about this recently, what it means to try to contend. We have a park run near our house every Saturday, and so I was out there yesterday morning running a 5K, feeling the pain, trying to contend, and talking to my boys afterwards saying, yeah, it's hard. It's difficult because you have to train. You've got to get yourself ready. You've got to push through, and then you've got to compete, right? Because there are others. It's not just you out there in the race. You've got to try not to be left behind. That's what it means to contend. It's a difficult thing. It's a struggle. And this is what Jude calls us to do, to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. It's not enough to passively take in and intellectually to understand what our common faith is. We are called to contend for that faith. And we're called to contend for it in a positive sense of learning more and more about the riches of God's grace in Christ, but also to contend against those who would deny Christ and who would distort grace. That's why we get this central example in verse 9 of Michael, the archangel. And what uh, this is a very complicated little bit, but here's what's going on there. Michael, as he is engaging with the devil over the body of Moses, again taken from contemporary literature in the first century that was not part of the Bible, Jude tells us he does not condemn the devil. He doesn't judge the devil. Instead, he rebukes him in the name of the Lord. And so we learn from Jude here and later that we are called to contend, but not to condemn. Only the Lord is judge. We are those who, under his authority, have to contend for the faith. But our job is not to judge people, to pronounce God's judgment upon them. Our job is to let his word pronounce judgment upon them and to call them to repentance and faith. That's the manner in which we are called to contend. We contend, but only God condemns. We'll talk more about that this evening. Well, let's close with this thought. We've seen that Jude, as Jesus' little brother, but even importantly, as his servant, uh, is, is neglected, but we ought to pay more attention to what he has to teach us. Jude teaches us that God has called us by grace to himself. He is keeping us by his grace in Christ, 
and he's called us to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. May God in his grace grant that we may do so faithfully. Let us pray.